The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. When it comes to great photography, it's often said that the images are as much about the photographer as they are about what's in front of the camera. Whether they're taking a portrait, a landscape, or an abstract photograph, a great photographer learns to see deeply, both within and outside of himself. Photography for George Nobeji has been very much about that. The sudden death of his father when George was still a young man resulted in a monumental shift of perspective, which led him to travel the world. Somewhat mirroring his own father's youthful travel lust, George eventually took up the use of a camera, which he uses to not only document what he has seen on his travels, but expresses how he feels. All right, George, welcome to The Candid Frame. Uh, hi, Ibarian X. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a good way to start the week, having a chance to, ch- uh, to chat with someone whose work I'm really liking and whose story I'm really curious about. You know, your, your father seems to have been a pivotal influencer in, in the life that you have led, not just as a photographer. Let's start there. Tell me about your father and your relationship with him. Well, my, my father was an interesting man himself. Um, he... Um, he grew up in a in a farm town uh, in rural Ontario, up in Canada, and uh, you know part of a big uh, traditional sort of farming family and all of that. Um, everybody stayed, uh, you know, probably within a hundred miles of that that small town. But my father went off to go see the world, which is pretty unusual given given you know both his upbringing and all of that. So he traveled a lot. Um, he was working for an, a global organization called the Junior Chamber of Commerce. International, which had you know branches all over the place, he ended up being Secretary General and uh, living down in Coral Gables, Florida, um, and so he did a lot of development work in Africa and Southeast Asia and all of that. And as part of that organization, he um, he traveled to Japan uh, for a conference in the 1970s. There met my mom, who's a Japanese lady from Hokkaido in the north. You know, I guess the two of them got married a few years later, and uh, I was born in Tokyo while my dad was working there. Um, so he, I guess from when I was young, uh, always instilled in us a thirst for knowledge, thirst for travel, and all of that. And so, you know, I was very fortunate in my upbringing, especially now that I look back on things, that, you know, I wasn't given a lot of material gifts or things like that. My allowance was about $4 a month, uh, which in Tokyo doesn't go very far. But instead, we had a lot of experiences uh, traveling all over the place. And that, that bug and influence has really stayed with me through the course of my life. You know, I was in uh, college at the University of British Columbia when I was, uh, we had moved back from Japan to Canada when I was in middle school. We were in Vancouver and I was studying history 
and it was my sophomore year of college that unfortunately uh, my father suddenly passed away and it was pretty devastating for my family with my mom and I had a younger sister who was 14. We kind of struggled to you know pick up the pieces because he'd been such a, a big part of our our life and it was uh, unexpected. And so, you know, my, my life took a little bit of a different course. I'd been studying history in college and I planned to go into academics, uh, be a teacher. Uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was a teacher, was also a big influence in my life. And so that's, that's kind of the path that I had, you know, sort of thought I had uh, ahead of me. But with everything happening with my, with my dad, things changed quite a bit. So I, um, being bilingual and all, uh, looking for a job for the summer, and we were going to go visit with um, said grandfather and grandmother on my Japanese side because they were worried about how we were doing. But, you know, all of a sudden there's bills to pay and, you know, going to Japan is expensive and all of that. So I, um, I went to go look for a summer job. So that took me back to Japan in a very different path. But I think that my father was always a, a quiet person but always someone who was very uh, thirsty for knowledge and, uh, you know, respect for diversity and for different cultures and all of that. And, and, and that's remained uh, a significant part of my life and, you know, my, um, my quest, I guess, to kind of reconcile what happened and, and the very different course that my life took and the things that, that my dad taught me. So, sorry for the long answer. But. No, no, hey, hey, this is a podcast. You can take as long as you can, as you want. Um, you, know, you, you, talk, you were talking about how your, your, your father just sort of traveled extensively, you know, before he met your mom and, and had you and your sister. How did you sort of learn and experience those, those travels? Was it through photographs? Was it by him telling you stories? Did he keep a diary? How, how did you sort of discover that part of your father's life? There were a few photographs um, around the house, you know, lots of photos of taken with that, you know, at, at functions with dignitaries and all of that. But I think the the first and most direct connection I felt was through things that, that he had, mementos, gifts, you know, uh, items that just as growing up as a child, I just looked around and there were, there, you know, uh, a, a chieftain's robe that was a gift from a tribe in, in uh, Central Africa, for example, or, you know, a, a Maori, you know, traditional crafts and things like that. And just growing up around that uh, around the house, it just it it felt very much like travel was a part of our life. But also, I mean, we started traveling when I was about six months old in terms of international travel, and I have early memories of of trips down to the Philippines and and Thailand and other parts of Southeast Asia as well. So it was a combination of things. But we really grew up all around it without being necessarily aware of it at the time. It was just part of our upbringing. Yeah. I, I, I've known some people who have been had parents who were in the military, and so mm -hmm. they were constantly, you know, being uprooted from wherever they were to move to a different base in a different location. And some of them have sort of mixed feelings. I mean, some of them really enjoyed what they experienced as being part of the military, but some of them have just talked about never being able to feel settled in. Right. Your dad wasn't involved in the military, but you kind of had a similar experience. What was your sort of perspective in terms of just being a kid and and you know, relationships and, and feeling like you had a place that was your own? Well, that's, that's a very good question. I think that to a large degree, it, it, it's a combination of things. So one is growing up and living in different places, whether it's Japan, which is, of course, very different from Canada. You know, I've lived in New York City, and now I, I, I live out in Tucson in Arizona. It's 
very different depending on you know where I've lived and I, and I've had many different houses and and moved around a lot but to a little bit different from say military families I wasn't uprooted as much like I, I spent the first 11 years of my life in Tokyo getting familiar with that and then we were in Western Canada for a while before I moved back to Tokyo as an adult to work there uh, after my uh, father's death and after graduating from college where I worked in Tokyo for 10 years so although I've moved around it hasn't you know it, I've had enough time to formulate friendships and relationships. And I think that that's been very important. At the same time, being, you know, sort of uh, bicultural growing up in Japan it, in, in a very homogeneous place, um, you know, Tokyo's changing a lot now. It's becoming much more cosmopolitan, I think. And there are a lot more people like me, you know, half Japanese and half other that have, you know, started to gain a sort of a, a, a foothold in Quite a, quite a lot of leaders actually in terms of the the cultural scene, the art scene, and 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 of course you know it began with modeling and TV and acting and all of that sort of thing. But you know there was always a sense of not quite belonging, and I think that stayed with me wherever I, wherever I've been. You know you 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 become a part of the place that you are, and you take those experiences with you. Yet at the same time, because you grow up as something that's always other, uh, if you had to take yeah. a box, you know. I think this is something that everybody deals with. I embrace it. I feel it's wonderful to be from multiple cultures uh, because I can always, um, you know, apply different filters to the world that I see around me and empathize with with situations and understand that there isn't, you know, necessarily just one way of doing things. And so I always appreciate that. Sometimes, you know, it can be frustrating, sure, but it, it all depends on, you know, how you, you know, perceive that aspect of your life. And for me, I've always thought of it as a, as a positive. You've used the word isolation to sort of describe that dis disconnectedness that you sometimes have with the world around you. Mm -hmm. I, I assume that from, from what you just said, that you don't necessarily see that isolation as, as in, in the bad way that a lot of people often associate with that word. Is that right? Um, that's right. I think that there's there are two sides to it. You know, I think certainly when you talk about isolation or, or loneliness or solitude, uh, there we very much have a negative um, sort of connotation that oftentimes we, we apply to that. But um, from my experience, you know, being on my own has also been some of the most interesting and rewarding times of my life. And that, that goes back to, you know, before photography and everything. So, what happened with me after my father, the first time I was 19, I went to Tokyo and I went door to door with my resume, basically looking for a job. And after going to a whole bunch of uh, multinational corporations that we're all familiar with, you know, like the IBMs, the Intels, et cetera, of the world, I ended up working, actually getting an internship in the financial sector that came as a result of being bilingual. You know, here I am, a history student, um, suddenly having to answer questions about convertible bonds, and I had no idea what they were. Mm. So it was, you know, it was an interesting and challenging experience, and I worked hard at that. You know, jobs were scarce then. September 11th just happened to come out of college needing money and being in a situation where I could move to Tokyo. I was given a full-time job offer. I was very fortunate to go to Tokyo and, and work was was something that I, I, I took up as a challenge. And I went there in the first few years there. I thought I wasn't 
you know, going to make it through um, very trying times just living back in Tokyo on my own. My family was still in Canada and Tokyo with its 30 million people can be very isolating, strangely. You know, you can feel very lonely in that, that place. And then I worked in an industry where I didn't really fit in, where I never really felt like part of that that whole culture. I didn't go to business school, you know, I, I didn't have dreams of doing this or, you know, it was just kind of like a, a means to support myself and my family. So even within my workspace, I felt sort of isolated. And then so I tried to reconcile those those issues and also with the kind of, uh, you know, I was I was resentful towards the turn that my life had taken after my dad. And so in 2008, I decided to quit for a while and uh, travel the world on my own. So I did, I went through 14 countries, six continents, just traveling solo. And it was probably the best thing I've ever done. Again, a lot of that was just trying to connect with with life and the world around me, whether it was going to the Galapagos and, you know, sailing around on a small boat and going waking up at a different island every day, uh, swimming with sea lions and penguins and all of that, or going to uh, Iguazu Falls and being on a Zodiac boat. This is over in Brazil and Argentina, you know, just screaming at the top of my lungs, you know, that feeling of being alive under a waterfall or volunteering in Quito, Ecuador, um, helping uh, hospice care for Down syndrome kids and all of that. And then going over to, you know, Europe and Egypt and all these other places and just a very, very uh, different and varied experience. But in each of those places, I think that when we are alone and we are so-called isolated, uh, we do seek connections and, and therefore we are more willing and open to see what's in front of us. I find that very different from when I travel with friends, for example, or family, we tend to, you know, talk more with the people that we are familiar with. Mm-hmm. And when, when, you know, in the case of me, a little bit introverted, if I'm out traveling on my own, I am forced to make connections with people because, and not that it, I'm against that, I, I willingly do it. And it just... Um, I think it, it keeps us more open to the possibility of connection and to the possibilities of, of what's in front of us. And so I've always found that to be one of the most interesting aspects of, of traveling alone. That loneliness that we feel is also wonderful because, like I said, it leads to a, a sense of longing, a sense of wanting to belong. And then so things happen. I mean, you meet people along the way and and you hear their stories and you're inspired by those too. And so that always informs you and I think that it's always in colored the way I've seen the world subsequently the way I photographed it as well 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 tell me about the role of photography you know tell me about the especially the the process of it being more than just documenting your travels and becoming more uh, of an exploration of what you were discovering about yourself and the way you were seeing the world I think that I can say you know looking at my life that photography in a way saved my life. So, you know, 10 years in Tokyo, and then I worked four more years in in New York City, I realized increasingly that I was looking for a change in my life. You know, I had got sucked into the rat race. It's very hard to break out of it once you're in it. Um, You know, the pay is pretty good, but the lifestyle is expensive. Uh, You live in cities like Tokyo or New York City, you know, Hong Kong, London, etc. It's not cheap to live there. 
other things creep in. So like, you know, obviously rent and, and uh, travel expenses, potentially uh, partners in life, etc. It becomes very hard to break out of that mold. And for me, I thought that, you know, moving from Tokyo to New York, I mean, I love New York City, the energy of it. It had always been a dream of mine, and I have no regrets about the the path that I took. But realizing when I was in New York and I was, you know, head of a small uh, trading desk at the time responsible for covering Asian markets, and I worked daytime New York hours, and then I went home and logged on um, just in time for the markets in Japan and Hong Kong to open. And so I really had no life. And it was, you know, my, my social life around me, uh, my my then girlfriend and I and other friends, you know, it, it was falling apart because of how much I needed to work. And out of that, as I was seeking um, ways of expressing myself, um, you know, interests outside of work, you know, photography came up. And the first time that I had picked up a, a camera properly, other than when I was a, a child, was when I, you know, purchased a, a, a an entry-level DSLR camera ahead of that 2008 trip to document it. And my interest in photography remained there to the point where I decided, okay, I should, you know, try and like do something on the weekend with this. My, my then girlfriend gifted me a, a, a gift certificate for a one day workshop out in Brooklyn. And I took that. It was three hours. It was, it was probably the most terrifying experience of my mm. life. <laughs> Again, I go back to being a little bit introverted, but one of the assignments was to make, you know, three portraits of strangers in Prospect Park. And that, of course, terrified me. I would have to go up to somebody and ask them if, you know, if I could make a portrait of them. And there's a lot of gruff characters in Prospect Park. This isn't Central Park with all the tourists and everything that are more approachable. So I think I spent the first two hours and 50 minutes walking around uh, trying to gather up my courage. And I realized I'm running out of time. I I have to ask somebody. So I saw this lady who was uh, shopping at a farmer's market on the one end of there. And then she had a cast on her arm. And uh, that gave me the entry. So I said, oh, what happened to your arm? And then I talked to her and I said, I'm a student uh, learning photography and uh, may I take your portrait? And she said, yes. And I was thrilled. And then I, I managed to do two more. And, and those portraits were horrible because I was nervous. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you know, I got the I got the focus point wrong and everything because I was shaking. But I loved it. And I went back to the um, to the instructor there, a guy by the name of Alan Winslow, who teaches out at Maine Media and other places now. Um, and I asked him, where can I do more of this? I love this. <laughs> and um, he said, well, you can, go to, you can go to Maine or you can go to the Santa Fe workshops. You know, I, I'd been to Maine before as a place. I'd never been out to New Mexico. So I looked on the website at the Santa Fe workshops and I saw a photograph of uh, two horses, a black and white photograph of two horses uh, running towards a gathering storm. And it was by a photographer from Nebraska by the name of uh, Brett L. Erickson. And I looked at that photograph and I thought, that's what I got to do. I I, I really want to go there. I I don't know what compelled me, but that class was starting in two days and I just booked my flight. I called up the workshops and I told them I want to get in that class. They, They had one opening left. So I I took it and I hopped on a on a plane and went to New Mexico to take this photography class and that sort of changed my life because I met Brett who was um, not only a terrific teacher and photographer in his own right but he looked at some of my work as, that I produced during that class and told me that I should go and um, take a workshop from Sam Abel 
you know, so that that was another life changing event in my life. This is why I think that photography not only saved me, but it feels like it found me. I didn't find it. It just seems to 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 keep happening where a path that I don't even anticipate or see opens up as I pursue it. So that's the wonderful thing about photography. It's been the connections with the people that I found along the way, and also the way it's been a gift in my life, giving me inspiration, but also surprising me in ways that I never would expect. What did you take away from those two photographers beyond whatever technical understanding that you may have had about the process of photography? What was it that you picked up from them that really infused your life with with a passion to explore the world with the camera? There are several aspects to that, but one I think is that just allowing my way of seeing the world, my vision to to come through, uh, rather than try and teach me a, a certain other way of shooting. I mean, Sam, of course, is an excellent teacher with layering and microcomposition and all of that. But the reason why Brett steered me towards him was because those things were also in my work. And they just needed somebody to, to be able to look at what I do and, and pull those aspects out of it, point them out to me, uh, because I had no photographic education whatsoever. So, you know, when Brett steered me towards Sam, for example, you know, it's shocking, but I never heard of Sam Abel. However, when I looked him up, I was very familiar with his photographs because, you know, we subscribed to National Geographic when I was a child as well. And I thought, oh, yeah, I remember that. And I remember this. And um, there were so many more. And I was, you know, very nervous when meeting with Sam, but we kind of immediately connected First day of class, Sam asked me to show, asked everybody in the class to show four images of their work. And the first image I showed was a photo of uh, Lake Louise from the hotel room. You know, part of my sort of uh, theme of lonesomeness and, and, and longing to connect. And he looked at that photograph and he immediately recognized it as Banff and then paid still what is probably the highest compliment of my life. He told me that he wished he'd taken that photograph. And from that point on, we just connected. We had the common bond of Japan as well in terms of how much, uh, you know, Sam did work in Japan and, and, and how much he loved being over there. But that aesthetic, I, I guess, and working with both Brett and Sam has helped me to, and of course, others along the way, like Arthur Meyerson, for example, working with them has helped me to be true to my vision and, and, and voice, which I think seeks quiet, calming, serenity, uh, solitude, mm -hmm. uh, those aspects, which I feel as I travel. And so with them, it was just not just believing in that vision and in myself, but understanding how I could do that better. I mean, Sam's anecdotes are always great, but when he told me about his difficulties on one occasion uh, with a geographic where he was uh, reprimanded, I guess, by his uh, his editors and, and, and said that your photographs are too quiet. And he he was angry, he said, and, and confused by that. He went away to think and he realized that he needed to not change who he was, not become a more sort of, I guess, change his style in terms of photography, but that he needed to do quiet better. And that has always stuck with me. So whatever it is that I'm, you know, I'm shooting, I'm always keeping in my mind that, you know, I need to continue to pursue making my vision, my voice stronger, better, even if that means that they are going to be quiet photographs. Yeah. So that's been very helpful with, with, with both of them.
join me on April 8th at the Los Angeles Center of Photography, where I will be teaching a full day workshop on street photography. After a short presentation, we'll hit the streets and I'll walk you through my own process for seeing and photographing in the streets. Whether you're new to street photography or have had some experience under your belt, you will find plenty to learn and enjoy as we explore the streets of Los Angeles together. Find out more about these and other courses offered at the Los Angeles Center of Photography by visiting lacphoto.org. Thanks for listening, and thanks to George for joining us on The Candid Frame. You can check out his photography by visiting georgenobeci.com. I think there comes a time for any photographer who's been shooting for a while that they start figuring out what they've been doing because a lot of it happens subconsciously. And even though their images are good, they may be consistent, the importance of having clarity in terms of what your vision is is really important so that you can progress. For you, what, what did you start realizing that was consistent in your work that may have been subconscious, but that you knew was part of who you were going to be as a photographer? You raise a very good point. And uh, one of the things that I wish that I could go back and tell myself a couple of years ago and what I would tell anybody who is new to photography as well, which is that uh, vision is so important. And, you know, a lot of times you sit there and you want to self-assign projects, for example. Um, After I took Sam's class, I went, I traveled to uh, back to Japan and I did uh, two months uh, traveling all over the country on my own thinking at first that I would cover uh, themes about, um, you know, the aftermath of the tsunami, etc. I mean, I'd, I'd been living there at the time, although I was in Tokyo, and it was a very scarring experience. An interesting one for Japan in that a lot of new artworks emerging in, in light of that. And I went there with a self-assigned project. But as I as I walked around and I tried to shoot, you know, rubble and and rebuilding and all of that, I realized that that wasn't necessarily what I wanted to to capture or express. So I decided I would just change up what I was doing and just go and shoot what came naturally to me, what I was drawn towards and not care so much about a specific project. And uh, someone that, you know, uh, was very good about teaching me that at a a certain point was a a photographer by the name of Arno Raphael Minkinen, who um, he photographs, he's had a lifelong work of doing wonderful black and white white, uh, self-portrait nudes in the landscape. Very different from obviously what I'm doing, but also a wonderful teacher and philosopher of photography in his own right. And he taught us and taught me about the importance of vision uh, more so than projects. That, you know, projects come as a result of vision, uh, not the other way around. You know, I, I quickly managed to recalibrate and, and go out and, and shoot and pursue what drew me first. And as I go back through and look at my images, I see hallmarks, I see windows, I see visual framing of different kinds, I see a soft quality to the light that I'm drawn towards rather than very high contrast scenes. I would say that I find that my style was also very formalist. You know, my my frames, that probably comes from working with Sam, are accounted for. You know, I'm, I'm trying to take into account every last aspect, every corner, every layer of the image. 
sometimes more successfully than others, but that as I looked through, I felt also a connection to the artwork of Hopper, for example, kind of looking in on life. And I realized that that was part of my vision. And and that might not necessarily translate into a specific project at, at any one time. But as I go through and shoot and I look through some of the work that I've made over the last couple of years, um, I start to see themes emerge. And that vision is consistent through most of the work. And so I'm happy about that, which is... Like I said, I think it draws on my upbringing, the combination of travel and the loneliness, but also um, looking out through the windows of of my apartment in Tokyo um, with all that chaos out there. Windows, frames, all of that kind of allowed me to to calm the chaos. I I find that even as I go through the expansive uh, landscape of the Southwest, I still seek those calming frames, the soft light when when it's available, those uh, types of aspects to my vision. Arno said about my photographs that a a good way to think about it might be to say that it's where light lives, um, kind of dancing on the fringes or beyond a window, uh, rather than the sort of more dramatic light that's that's, uh, more accessible, I, I suppose, in the West. But it's 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 kind of need to go look through the work again and find those aspects that were always there and uh, I just needed to keep shooting until I, I could find that so again I would say that um, one thing I could tell say to other photographers starting out is that find your vision shoot what what you're drawn to most first uh, just keep shooting and don't worry too much about starting projects right off the bat until you're comfortable with who you are as a photographer. Yeah. Your your shots are very interesting because, as we've been talking about, there are a lot of quiet moments there. In many of the images, there aren't necessarily people in the frame, but the presence of people is is always there, even if it's just you as the photographer, as the person occupying that, that hotel room. When it comes to sort of discovering those quiet moments... Do you find that being in an environment, say, like Tokyo, which is very busy, very hectic, that it's harder or easier for you to find those moments? Does does the environment have play a big role in the challenges that you may or may not face when it comes to finding those those quiet moments? Well, I think that, that both work, but I, I actually find... Tokyo probably ironically easier in in terms of finding the quiet moments because when you do find quiet it's it's a little more obvious um, you know when when I'm out here in the desert in the southwest driving around or out in you know the the fields of Nebraska everything is quiet mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, in Tokyo it's 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 harder to organize and find those moments but uh, when they do there's something very strong about uh, about that feeling of quiet that you get. I think, though, that all of it has come through, you know, with with more shooting and more more confidence in and understanding. It, it comes more naturally. So, um, not every hotel room is a photograph waiting to be made. Some some are and uh, interesting, and some are not, and for different reasons. And I think that the same in terms of the presence of people. You know, sometimes it is my own things. Sometimes it's it's someone else's things. And uh, I think, though, that, yeah, Tokyo, with its busyness, it, it keeps you looking because 
there's an awful lot of street photography that can be done about Tokyo. But for me, in doing it differently, it's about those quiet moments and, um, you know, like one person off in the distance or, you know, different reflections and frames that imply uh, the presence of people uh, without, you know, being about the millions that are there. So that's, that's uh, I would say that Tokyo is easier, but it all comes as a joy. It's yeah. all a challenge. And uh, I, I love looking for those moments and, and discovering them as I go. Has the Japanese aesthetic of, of photography and art had any influence in, in your work? Um, I would say so, particularly when I look at the woodblock prints of Hokusai. Again, this came as a result of looking at my photographs um, after I began to put together a, a larger body of work. So it came through, you know, tens of thousands of photographs made, crafted, and I look at sort of my contact sheets as I go through and I, I started to notice patterns there. So we talked about, you know, sort of the quiet moments and the light, but I realized, of course, Uh, as well that I tended to when I was making photographs involving people uh, they were in interesting uh, settings that the setting was important and then the framing the foreground etc involved the presence of of people uh, which is very much something that that Hokusai was doing, for example, where he had platforms of people uh, looking out, viewing Mount Fuji or the cherry blossoms or things like that. And so that w- that was one part of the influence. As I became more familiar with the Japanese photographers, I would say that, you know, my style is probably a little bit different from what uh, most people associate with traditional Japanese photography. One of the compliments that I, I, I got from uh, Whitney Johnson, who's the um, deputy director of photography, is a deputy director of photography at National Geographic, was that my photographs of Japan are a little bit different. They don't look like other people's, which is one of the the highest compliments I think you can receive as a photographer is that yours look different. I think that, you know, I, I look at artists today like uh, Yamamoto and, and Sugimoto on the quiet um, side, and I, and I admire the Almost, uh, you can say at the surface it looks so simple, but what it ha- what their photography does so well is is reduce so many of the the, the elements down into the most essential and executes them with, with such beauty that you could just stare at their photographs forever. So I find what what they do quite interesting. My work's very different from like the likes of uh, Araki and uh, Moriyama and those other you know gritty traditional traditional is, is is a funny way of putting it but the black and white street photographers that are that are famous in Japanese photography but definitely the aesthetic the 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 sort of compartmentalization of things the order and chaos the appreciation for you know elements of of wabi-sabi which are um, sort of the appreciation for the imperfect the sort of worn down beauty that exists in the world that everything doesn't have to be shiny and new that the old cracked overlooked underappreciated all those things are worthy of of, of photography and and um, you know that's that's partly uh, ties back into the sort of Western uh, new topographics and such as well. So it, it, it's all very interesting in terms of a, a path of discovery for me looking at different artists. But, you know, there's a lot of interesting work out there that Japanese artists and photographers have been doing for a long time. So what do you do to sustain your, your lifestyle in this way? 
Um, well, I, um, I decided to marry a couple of uh, different backgrounds and skill sets, decided that uh, it would be really interesting if we started taking photographers over to Japan um, and helping them, you know, discover new places. I, uh, I came up with this idea when I was interning at the Santa Fe workshop. So after I quit uh, my last role as a, as a head of trading, uh, a, a small desk at JP Morgan, I, I went from, uh, you know, executive director <laughs> at, a, at a Wall Street bank to being the coffee boy at the Santa Fe workshops. They have a work study program there, which is wonderful. And during that time, I came up with the idea to uh, put together some programming on uh, expeditions to Japan. The first trip that we did was with with uh, Arthur Meyerson, um, who you've had on the show, is a great mm-hmm. photographer. We came up with an idea to do a trip through Japan in the winter time, and we did some traditional locations, but we also decided to go to some of the places that I've been exploring. So. You know, I've now spent 21, 22 years of my life in Japan, and for the last couple of years, I've been exploring it uh, in very much in with the eye of a photographer, uh, traveling the whole length of the country from Hokkaido in the far north to uh, Okinawa in the south. And I go there as a photographer looking for interesting places, uh, locations, etc. So we break outside of the traditional mold with our trips. You know, for example, with Arthur's trip, we stayed in a... In a an ancient monastery at Koyasang uh, with with monks. We've stayed in uh, thatched roof farmhouses, uh, 250-year-old farmhouses in the middle of the snowiest region of Japan. I've, you know, I've gone back again uh, with Sam Abel. Uh, we traveled around following the footsteps of Matsuo Basho, the, the haiku poet of the Edo period. And so we went north through the Tohoku region, uh, visiting many areas that are under-photographed by folks in the West, certainly, and I think even among Japanese photographers, um, small towns and, and things like that. And so, you know, putting together expeditions where we take photographers over there gives us a chance to, you know, to find an income, but also to introduce people to a very different side of Japan than what they're used to seeing. And also connect with local photographers, local students, and all of that along the way. We visit schools each time and, and conduct talks and uh, introduce some of the these uh, fantastic, well-established Western photographers to a Japanese audience. So it's been a really interesting uh, way of doing things, and that's why I kind of currently split half my time between uh, Japan and, and, and the U.S. You're in your mid-30s, and during that time, traditionally an uh, expectation that you'll have your, you'll be in the midst of your career, that you'll have started a family, blah, 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 you know, sort of settled in. I'm curious as, as to whether or not you feel or if any pressure is directed in your way from family and friends in terms of, George, are you, have you figured this out yet? Have you got it out of your system? Do, do, do you get that? And, and if so, how, how do you respond to it? Um, well, um, that's very funny. I mean, you know, this is a, a choice that I've made and one that I have, you know, no regrets about. Although I can tell you that there are plenty of moments along the way where you do feel like, did I make the right choice? You know, I uh, I paid my dues in the financial world and I was probably getting to the, the heart of the career where you start to actually uh, make uh, you know, really good money and all of that. And I walked away from that. Uh, you know, it's by no means 
am I financially secure where I can just sit here and I can say, uh, you know, this, this is retirement, essentially. It's nothing like that at all, you know, with all the, the stories that you may hear. This is hard, right? You, you to commit to a, a life in photography and one that inv- involves sort of reinventing yourself, creating these expedition ideas and all of that, it involves travel. And that does mean that you're not available emotionally to, to be in relationships. And, um, you know, I've found that to be the case. And it's not as though you don't care about the people that you meet along the way. Uh, it's, it's the opposite. And you want to, to be there for them and connect with them. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I didn't choose this path in order to half, you know, only go halfway. Um, you, you have to commit. And to do that, you need to be available at any point. If, if somebody calls me up and says that they want to, for example, an environmental photographer, Jamie Stillings, based in New Mexico, um, who did a lot of aerial projects um, out in the Mojave and other places on solar and renewable energy. He wanted to go to Japan, cover what's happening in the, in the renewable energy space in Japan and get in you know, helicopters and do all of that. I had to be able to say, you know, I'm going to go. Uh, I can help you with that. Within you know a month, we'd put together a big research project, and then off we went. And I couldn't really do that if I had the family commitments. I think that it's it's hard because you try you you know you meet nice people along the way, and you try and forge something with them. But ultimately, if they're not in a similar situation in life as you, mm-hmm. um, they're not really going to be understanding of 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 what you are trying to do. And it always feels like you're prioritizing your career over them and, and all of that. So that part of it's hard. On the flip side, there's my peers who who at first thought this was just kind of a, a, a hobby. These are the my former colleagues in the financial world who uh, a lot of them anticipated that I would be coming back um, and were always trying to send me uh, job openings uh, every <laughs> other week. And I kept turning them down. And, uh, you know, it's uh, a little over two years later that I I continue to do this and, uh, and have the expeditions going, those voices have changed. Um, I think that they have all come around to the idea that I'm doing this. They've been, you know, becoming increasingly supportive. Not that they weren't in the beginning, but I think they were expecting that I'd come back. And I, I haven't and I won't. In a way, they've told me, a lot of them have told me that I have become a source of inspiration for them in their own lives and uh, that they hope that I continue to do this. I think that at first, yeah, you get people saying, what, are you crazy? Um, <laughs> you're going to walk away from, you know, six-figure salary and all of this to, to make nothing as a photographer. But I love I love it. I love what I do. I wouldn't change it for the world. At the same time, like I said, my experiences are what color me. I'm, I'm a little bit different of a photographer than than the, you know, traditional route, for sure. The, those who study photography, who get their MFAs and make wonderful work. And, uh, you know, I haven't had that kind of photographic education, but I have had a life education. And uh, I try to, you know, remember that as I, as I go. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover uh, on their own, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? Yes, I've been looking forward to this question, actually. So <laughs> I would say that um, there, uh, I've already mentioned a number, so I'm going to, to break it down into two. One emerging photographer 
from Japan for you that I, I, I just recently met. We were finalists together in Critical Mass last year, and I met her in Japan through uh, some mutual friends. Her name is Yukari Chikura, Y-U-K-A-R-I. Chikura, C-H-I-K-U-R-A. She's just an, a relatively new photographer on the scene as well. She's been doing some wonderful work as a result of uh, inspiration from her own father's death. I mean, she just started in photography in 2012, but she's already won the Steidel Book Award and is having a book made. Um, so she's an inspiration for me. So her work's wonderful. And then the other one, more for the established side of things, if people are unfamiliar with uh, Kate Brakey, um, she is an Australian photographer based out here in Tucson. She does incredible um, hand-colored work as well as gold leaf work, alternative process work. Uh, very different from my own sort of traditional photography, but someone I uh, admire very much. So that's who I would uh, point, uh, you know, listeners to. Well, thank you for those recommendations. I look forward to checking out their work. So, But thank you so much for making time for me today. I really, really do appreciate it. Well, thank you, Barian X. I'll say that, you know, I, I discovered your show about a year and a half ago, and then a number of photographers that I that have had the chance to uh, to meet with. Uh, Nancy Lehrer was on my trip to Japan. Uh, Arthur Meyerson, we talked about, of course, worked with him in Japan, and we'll be going back again in April. Uh, Sam Abel, of course, we uh, we, we touched on, and then and, and others. Um, in kind of discovering um, your interviews with them, and then everybody else that you've had, um, I'll say that I've probably listened in the year and a half since I discovered your show to about 70 or 80 podcasts as I drive around the West. I'm catching up. I hope to listen to all of them. I think it's it's wonderful what you're doing. And uh, on your photography side, I, I just really wanted to compliment you as well on your work. I know that you don't need to hear from me, but in particular, the uh, Boys and Girls Club of Hollywood, uh, the diversity, the sort of personal touch that you showed there, I thought it was is it was really wonderful and uh, very inspirational. So, uh, thank you for what you're doing, both in terms of your work as well as like talking about photography on 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 this wonderful show that you have. So, can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you. It's very kind of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations like the one you heard today. Thanks to Dick1901, The Real DJ, and Photo Enthusiast for their five-star reviews. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and the candid frame website. Or if you just want to make a one time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the donate button on the candid frame website or in the show notes. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save any of the great interviews we present here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. 
The Candid Frames audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbarianX. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.